This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. In the court system, in our court system, we pay judges, we pay lawyers, we pay clerks, we pay court reporters, we pay bailiffs, we pay court security, we pay pretty much everybody who's in the courtroom and not as an observer, not as a spectator, we pay them. They earn their money for being there, except for one group. The one group we don't pay, we don't pay the people who in many cases actually determine the justice, determine the guilt or innocence of the person who's on trial. That would be the jurors. Should we, though? There was a piece in The Spectator today by my next guest. Dr. Michael Armstrong is an associate professor at the Goodman School of Business at Brock University, wrote a fascinating piece today about the idea of whether or not jurors should actually be paid. He joins me now. Dr. Armstrong, thanks for doing this tonight. Thank you for having me, Scott. It is something, I've thought of something else, and I'll get to it in a second, about jurors, but it never really, for whatever reason, it's never really been an issue. I guess it's because I've maybe I've never been called to be a juror yet, but it never dawned on me that this was something we should be doing. What, for you, what prompted this position today that you took? Well, uh, like you, Scott, it wasn't really something I thought about until I actually got called uh, for jury duty uh, this past year. Now, I ended up not uh, being needed, so I didn't serve on a juror, jury. Uh, but because I did get that summons, I started looking into it and saying, okay, what's, what does this involve? Uh, how much time will it take? Uh, what's expected of me? That kind of thing. And uh, ran across the, uh, the compensation rates, which uh, in Ontario, uh, you get paid nothing for the selection process, whatever time you spend at the courthouse while they decide, are you going on the jury or not? Uh, you also get paid nothing for the first 10 days of actual service on the jury. It's only on the 11th day you start getting paid uh, at the not very impressive rate of $40 per day. And uh, if the trial goes on a long time, uh, starting on day 50, you start getting $100 a day. Um, so I was looking at those and thinking, oh, those aren't really very generous numbers. And then not too long after that, uh, we started getting announcements about the proposal to increase the minimum wage in Ontario. And those two facts kind of clicked together. And I thought, hey, this, you know, comparing what we pay jurors to what we currently pay minimum wage and what we're proposing to pay minimum wage, this seems way out of line. Do most people, and I honestly don't know this, and I really should know this, uh, because one of these days I am going to get an envelope in the mail telling me I have to serve. Do most people who have a full-time job have it, are they covered for that? Would they still be paid if they had to go and sit on a jury? Do most businesses still pay people? I'm not talking about those who are on an hourly wage necessarily, but those who have a salary. Do they get covered still if they have to go to jury? Well, I don't know the uh, statistical breakdown, but um, what the law guarantees, and the only thing the law guarantees, is your employer has to hold your job for you. So whether you're on um, hourly, whether you're uh, monthly, long-time, temporary, uh, if you get signed for jury duty, the, the employer can't give away your job. Uh, so when you get back, you have a job. But they don't say anything about what you would get paid. So if you're a waiter or a waitress, let's say, I mean, you would take them as a, just as an example that comes to mind as someone who's working on an hourly rate, and you have to spend 15 days in a courtroom because you get picked for a jury. That could be really costly for you. Exactly. And basically, the lower you are on the, on the economic scale, uh, yeah, you're probably giving up less, you know, less in terms of your hourly rate, but you probably also have less 
savings. You're probably living much closer to just getting by. Um, so the people who don't lose at all would be actually people like me, uh, people who are in larger, uh, often unionized organizations who have in their contract as kind of a benefit from the employer uh, paid court leave. Um, but I'm pretty sure that would be the minority uh, across Ontario, and certainly, as you said, you know, the kind of classic minimum wage person or close to minimum wage, waiters, cashiers, uh, would typically not have that benefit. I know you are a business prof, not a legal prof, so I, I, I take that in consideration asking this question, but do you know, can you request, do you know if you can request to the judge or to whomever to be ex- excluded from a jury based on financial hardship, that if I have to sit there, I'm going to be losing so much money, this is going to hurt my family? Uh, you can make that request. Uh, part of the uh, summoning process and then the actual selection process, there's an opportunity to explain uh, any reason why you shouldn't be on the jury, whether that's medical, um, job commitments, but financial uh, need, uh, yeah, if you if you have to go without pay for, say, 10 days, two weeks, uh, and you won't be able to pay your rent that month, uh, that would be a pretty uh, pretty important reason to speak up about it. You know, it's really funny you're, that this came up today, because just yesterday on the show, we were chatting about the new... Um, for new people coming to Canada, the civic test that you have to do to become the Canadian's test. And one of the things that has been written in there for the new version is that being on a jury is part of your civic responsibility. And I think most people agree with that concept, but you raise a really interesting thing is where does civic responsibility end and financial hardship begin? And I, I mean, I thinking about this really for the first time, I absolutely agree with you. This seems like for some people who might get, I don't want to say roped, who might get drawn into being part of a long trial, this could be a really, really difficult thing to balance that you want to be a good member of society and do your duty, but at what cost? That's a good point. Um, And there aren't really a lot of other uh, comparisons to make in the sense of uh, what we think of as civic duty. Well, you know, we all have to obey laws, so in terms of speeding, paying our taxes and such. But in terms of civic duty, the other example comes up is voting. Mm. Uh, We don't get paid to vote. Um, But voting... You know, that's a few minutes uh, actually uh, filling out the little form. Uh, you might have to wait in line half an hour or something like that. But, you know, that's a very minor commitment of your time. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, if voting, took, if voting took two weeks, I wonder how many people would do it. <laughs> yes, the, the participation rates in some elections are very low enough. <laughs> uh, but that's a good point. And, and voting isn't even, uh, is not ob- ob- obligatory. Whereas if you get a summons for jury, you are required to report. Uh, and if the judge does, in fact, pick you, you are required to serve. Um, now, another comparison might be, uh, you know, military service. Um, that's serving your country. That's certainly a very honorable uh, civic, I'm not sure civic is quite the word, but a duty as a citizen. Um, but even back in the old days when we had the draft, we would pay draftees. Uh, some kind of salary from day one. Right. You weren't expected Uh, to do it for free, even though you did your duty. Yeah, it wasn't something you got into. You don't go into it for the money, but they expect, you know, you have kids to support, you've got uh, bills to pay. Um, If you went and joined the military right now, again, you're not going to do it to get rich, but uh, you get paid from day one. Now, of course, in boot camp, you're going to work a whole lot harder than uh, (laughs) a typical juror, but nonetheless... 
You, I mean, the other interesting, or one of the other interesting points you raised here, and I wanted to bring this up because I thought it was something that was, as I read through this piece, and again, I would encourage people to go to thespec.com and read this. It's, it's in the opinion. You go to opinion on thespec.com, you can find it there. The government has made a point, along with others, of trying to crack down on unpaid interns. That this has been something that they have been looking and, and trying to push the thing to force companies not to be hiring unpaid interns and to take advantage of that branch of work or that, that, that workforce. And yet here they are using essentially unpaid interns to do what really is one of the most difficult and important pieces of our process, which is to judge someone's guilt or innocence, possibly send them to jail for life. That seems kind of hypocritical. It does look that way. Now, in fairness to the current Liberal government, they're not the ones who brought this in, nope. uh, the pay rates for jurors. And in fact, it probably goes back quite a long way into history as to why it is the way it is. But since they are the current government, uh, and particularly since they are making a big deal out of increasing the minimum wage, as you said, uh, in recent years they've uh, several times have made efforts to uh, reduce the use of un- unpaid interns, uh, it would seem very sensible and actually much easier than either of those two issues. Uh, I mean, there's lots of trade-offs. There's lots of discussion and uh, opposing views about minimum wage. Should it be raised? How much? And so forth. Uh, it's, but by comparison, saying, hey, you know, you're bringing people in the courtroom to do an important service for us. We, the taxpayers, the provincial government who represents us, we should be paying those people for their time. One of the things that I've thought for a long time, and I'd never thought of it from your perspective here of what you've written, but I'd love to consider the idea and bounce around the idea of whether it would be possible, because then you would, uh, of having, let me back up, uh, the possibility of having professional jurors, people who do this actually for a living, who would then know something about the law. Now, again, you're not a legal professor, but that could be some, it could be, it could be a job. You would have to pay them then. I've always thought that would be an interesting thing. Rather than drag somebody in off the street for one case, they have to learn all the elements of the law and make a decision that they may or may not know anything about. If you had this as a job, it would have to be paid, and then you would have people, presumably, who actually know something about it as they hear these cases. You're right. As a, because I'm not a legal expert, uh, I don't know much about that. I have heard that there are countries in Europe that kind of have that system. They have... Uh, I think they call them lay judges. So they're, you know, they're not expert judges, but they're not just someone dragged off the street either. Um, but even without going that far, you can look just within Canada for comparisons. Uh, Quebec is actually one of the most generous provinces right now with uh, jury pay. They pay, uh, I believe, it's $103 from day one uh, for service. So that's uh, roughly a little bit more than minimum wage. Plus, uh, there's actually some benefits in terms of uh, if you need child care because you're on jury duty. Uh, if the trial goes longer, the pay rate goes up. If the trial runs in the evenings or weekends, the pay rate goes up. So, you know, I don't know how much jurors should be paid. Um, you know, as you say, maybe we should treat it as a full-time job uh, and pay it uh, quite generously. But at the very minimum, uh, you know, any other job in Ontario would be paid at least minimum wage. So let's pay jurors at least minimum wage. I hate to even use the example because it's uh, it's so unique and it's um, unlikely to happen all that often, but just imagine for a second if the O.J. Simpson case that went on for six or seven months, whatever it was, had been in Ontario, 
what you would have, I mean, honestly, what you would have, would have been asking someone to give up to be on that. I mean, I know the people who were on that jury already complained endlessly way back when, but I mean, even if it was a two or a three month trial, and I know what you just said, that you do get something the longer it goes on, but boy, oh boy, it's, 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 uh, it's a great discussion point about whether or not there should be some kind of remuneration for people who have to give up their time and do their duty. It's uh, it's a well-written piece, and again, I would encourage people to go look it up. Dr. Michael Armstrong, Associate Professor of the Goodman School of Business at Brock University. Really appreciate the time today. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, go back, by the way, and look at thespec.com. Uh, again, it's under opinion. You can see opinion at the top and, and go read it because there's a lot more in there, a lot more interesting ideas. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on this because it seems to me, something again, something I had never really given much thought to because it's, unless you've been called to be on a jury, why would you think of it? And I haven't been yet. I'm sure, as I say, I'm sure before my time is done, that envelope, you know, now that we're talking about this, probably next week, that's the way Murphy's Law works. But until you've actually had to go through that experience, chances are it's not going to be something that is front of mind for you. But if you've had to go there and sit on a trial, let's take a more recent example from something that is around here. If you had been a juror on the Bosma trial, that's a lot of time that you're being asked to give up away from your work from your career. And if you are someone who has protection in your contract or in your deal that says you'll be paid your salary while you're on jury duty, so be it. But if you're someone who's a waiter or a waitress or someone who's working on hourly wages, while Dr. Armstrong points out, of course, that your company has to protect your job, you can't lose your job for going and doing jury duty. That is a lot of money that you're giving up. That's a lot of money that you are losing out on. And if again, if you're on hourly wages, if that's how you make your living and you're not being paid and you have to continue to pay your mortgage, pay your rent, put food on the table, pay your bills, pay your cell phone bill, pay all these kind of things, how exactly do you do that? And here's the last part about this. If presumably... We want people to be on juries who are, i got to be careful how I say this because I don't want it to come out completely wrong, but we want people on juries who are intelligent, who are thinking, who are, um, we want people who have been in the workforce. doesn't mean if you don't have a job that you're not smart. But by and large, if you put together, if every jury that we put together is people, is only people who are unemployed or not in the workforce, probably that's not exactly what we're looking for. There's got to be a balance. And you want to have people on there who are intellectuals. You want to have people who are blue collar. You want to have people from all lines of work. Surely, if we are in a situation where we're basically telling our pool of jurors that if you get called, speak to the judge right away and say, no, no, because of financial hardship, I can't be on this. Who's left? And how does that affect our juries? And how does that affect then our system of of justice? Not being employed doesn't mean you're stupid. But oftentimes, someone who is employed, you bring certain intellect or certain skills to the table that when you're sitting around a table discussing something, you would want a few of those people involved, I would think. You want people who are uh, 
who have shown an ability to be in the workforce and have that level of thinking and that level of critical analysis. I don't think we want to have a situation, do we, where you're basically saying, mm, no, no, it's going to cost me too much, so I'm out of here. Let's leave it for everyone else. It's a really interesting topic. Go read the piece a- after the show, of course. Of course. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. You have probably seen at one time or another, or maybe been on, those minibuses that drive around and take people from different places to the local casinos. You see them from time to time. They are, well, they're positioned, I guess, or at least suggested they are a convenient way for people who want to go and have some fun at the casino to get there and back in a safe way, and that's convenient. Well, there's an issue with this, potentially. A new study is out saying something like 30%, maybe even a little more than that, of those who ride those buses, those bus tours up to the casinos, something like 30% are problem gamblers, it's been discovered. Maybe that's not a huge surprise. Maybe it shouldn't be a huge surprise. Dr. Mark Vandermas is the lead author on the study and a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in its Institute for Mental Health Policy Research. Uh, she jo- uh, he joins me now. Dr. Vandermas, thank you for doing this tonight. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me on. You, when you hear these numbers, and you've seen these buses around too, you can't be, I wouldn't think, totally shocked that a certain number of the people who would use this service would have a gambling problem, could you? Uh, no, it's not all that surprising, right? If people go to a casino to gamble, so you would expect to see a higher rate of problem gambling at a casino. Um, the real surprising thing is that no one's kind of proven it yet. Mm. Are you surprised yeah. at all that it's not even a little bit higher? Uh, well, if we consider the rates against the general population, it's actually very, very high. Okay. okay. So for the scale that we used, the general population finds that people over the age of 55, it's about uh, 0.2% are severe problem gamblers. Uh, in our sample, for the people who took the bus, uh, it was closer to 10%. Okay. Uh, that means it's about 50 times what you would expect wow. to see in the general population. You use a term there, severe problem gamblers. What is the definition? What does that actually mean? Right. So the 30% uh, that was quoted uh, in your kind of headline there, that uh, refers to people experiencing moderate to severe problems. So it interferes with their life, but it's not all that devastating. Uh, when we talk about uh, more severe problem gambling, that's more of the classic problem gambler, the person you would consider to be uh, kind of addicted to gambling. And is there a, a an actual definition or is there a percentage of income that's used? Or I mean, how do we, how do we sort of mark that benchmark of who is in that category? Right. Uh, so we use the uh, Canadian Problem Gambling uh, Index for this, and it's a collection of things. So it's an inability to stop when you think you should. Uh, it's whether people the close to you have asked you to stop and you haven't been able to do it, whether you've had problems uh, recouping losses from gambling, whether you've gone into debt or stolen in order to keep your gambling habit going, things like that. 
And you also mentioned just a moment ago, as you were talking about severe gambling, you said those 55 and over. This this seems like not, not problem gambling per se, but certainly these buses. This is an issue of older people. Is that just because they're not driving as much so these buses are more convenient, or is there something else going on? Uh, I see these buses as part of a very uh, concentrated effort to market to older adults to get them into casinos. Uh, it's, it's certainly not subtle, these programs. Uh, almost every major casino in Ontario will have some kind of promotional uh, activities going on for older adults specifically, Silverbird specials, things like that. Okay, so you, you used the word tar, uh, targeted. What about, uh, could we switch that around, and uh, would you agree or would you be uncomfortable with the idea of the word praying? Because it seems as though, because if you're going after a certain market and you can clearly see, your study has shown it, that a reasonable number of these people are suffering from a problem, it would seem to be going after, preying on people who may, you can separate them from their money pretty easily. Uh, I would stay away from something like praying because it kind of implies that these older adults aren't making, you know, kind of conscious and active decisions for themselves. Okay. Uh, the majority of people who gamble do do so without major problems, uh, but I would say that the reason we might have been getting letting them get away with this kind of thing for so long is that no one had actually pinned down the numbers. Mm. So it's kind of something everybody knows, but nobody can actually prove. And I feel like this article has brought a lot of uh, new information to light that really should be incorporated into responsible gambling policy. Am I correct that all casinos in the province of Ontario are operated by the province? Uh, they're all either operated or heavily regulated by the province. Um, there are uh, charity casinos, which mm, okay, are slightly okay. different. But if, that, if that's the case, so we've got heavy regulation or operation by the government, and so they're overseeing, essentially, the, the government is overseeing the casinos. To me, that's, to then do this, that is more troubling than a private enterprise. A private enterprise exists for the purpose of making money. We understand that. And then if there's some problems that we have with it, we, that's, that's one thing. But it seems to me there's mo- there should be, anyway, more of an obligation on a government to look after its citizens rather than to take advantage. And that sounds like this is a, a system that is designed to go after people that we can get money out of them. Uh, personally, I would prefer to see uh, gambling in the hands of the provincial government rather than a private operator, um, exactly for the reasons that you're pointing out here. Uh, there's not as likely for the private operators to have like an accountability to anything besides something like shareholders or owners, whereas there's more recourse to kind of call out the provincial government and ask them to rethink how they provide gambling when information like this comes up. And I don't disagree with you on that one. I I have no problem if we're going to have the government run these things. My point is, if the government is running these things, you would like to believe that the government's purpose is to help the citizens. And it sounds like in this case, it's doing things, it's making available services with the intent of taking money away. It, It has to know. It's not doing uh, it's not running these services if it doesn't believe that it's effective. Am I wrong? Uh, 
It's a gray area <laughs> because because the uh, the province doesn't run the bus tours. The bus tours are private operators that, okay. that simply bring people to the casino, but are not owned or operated by them. All right. I didn't understand that. Okay. So that is a different thing then, because I was under the impression that casinos were the ones who were bringing these buses out there, putting the buses out there to get people in the doors. This yeah, is not. Um, these are, of course, cooperation between the companies, um, but they do not own the actual bus tour companies. All right. Well, fair enough. That changes things considerably, because if it was the government, if it was the casino that was sending out the buses, you are then essentially making an assembly, uh, like a, a conveyor belt to bring people in and separate them from their money. That's a different thing. Um, but it, it, these buses, even the buses, it is, it is posed, it is positioned that this is just a fun and harmless way to, it's, it's, it's marketed as a great day away. And, and I, I suppose what you're saying is for many people, for most people, it is, is just the ones that have problems that we now know there's a lot more of them that we expected that this thing becomes an issue. Yeah. What the, the, for me, the, the real concern is that it's a very quick progression from something that you kind of just do casually a couple times a year or a couple times a month to something where you cannot recoup the losses and you keep trying to win back that money you've already put in, mm-hmm. like the idea of chasing losses. And what's particularly trouble for, troubling for older adults is that there's no chance to make back that money through other means or at least less chance. Right, we see a higher proportion of people retired or living on benefits um, than you would for younger cohorts. So, those financial consequences can be much more dire for older adults. How how does gambling addiction compare? Do we see as many young people facing gambling addiction as we do older people? Uh, actually, the the rates are highest in young adults. Really? Okay, I didn't realize that either. Uh, that's right, yeah. Older adults actually show um, fairly low rates compared to younger cohorts. Uh, it's just when we do find them in casino, we find fairly troubling statistics like the ones in this paper. Now, this is not what your paper was all about, and, and I, I don't even know if, I, I assume you might be able to answer this, but I don't know. But what is out there? If If someone does end up having a gambling problem, I know we have the... Uh, Ontario Gambling Helpline. You can call a phone number, and I suppose get help or get directed somewhere. But what serv- do we have? A lot of services in this province. If, if again, if the government's going to operate casinos, I would like to think that there is also for those who then get in trouble. There's some way to actually help them. Is there? Uh, a great resource um, is run through uh, Center for Addiction and Mental Health (CAMH) uh, at problemgambling.ca. Uh, there, you'll find just a wealth of information if you're worried about your own gambling or if you're worried about the gambling habits of of your loved ones. Uh, It can get you in touch with professional help. Uh, It can also give you uh, a suite of online resources that are very anonymous and very secure. Uh, That can really be a great help to someone or someone who loves someone who is showing signs of problem gambling. Should have asked you this right off the top, but how did you actually find the numbers for this? How did you? How do you do a study? I mean, is it all volunteers who tell you how much they've lost? How do you figure out what percentage of people are problem gamblers who are on these things? Uh, so for this study, we kind of just camped out in front of uh, some casinos and racetracks with slot machines and just asked people to fill out a survey coming in or coming out. We give them like a small 
gift card to a place like uh, Tim Hortons or another small business close by and just ask them to share uh, some information about themselves. And uh, people are usually happy to do it. Next time you got to camp out on a cruise ship in one of their casinos, because I tell you, there are people who never leave the entire time the ship is at sea. I'm, I, I think if they're not on these buses, they're probably on a ship, the problem gamblers, a lot of them, honestly. This is, I think you've wrote my next proposal for me. I think so, good. yeah. I think you need to do about a six-month cruise vacation to study, uh, Mark. I think that, you know, you can position that. You're, you know how to write one of these grant forms. That would be a great idea. I'll help you. If you need someone for six months. I on board. Yeah, no, I think that would be, I think that would be a really good thing. But I'm, I'm, I'm only half joking, though, because I, I guess my point is this, is, this is one piece of the puzzle, these, these buses, and it's one small part, but you can find this just about anywhere, right? I mean, whether it's with um, sports gambling or whether it's with whatever else, I mean, the, the, the numbers are out there of people who have problems. And, I, and I'm wondering if you say the general population is a lot less. Is there maybe reason to believe the number is actually higher than we think? We just don't know about it? Or are, are we very confident in those low numbers of people who have a problem with this? Uh, the numbers that we kind of use to estimate have been replicated uh, over different time and different locations. But it's true that when you ask someone about an activity or a habit that they kind of think is judged poorly morally, yeah, you get kind of people lying about the things that they do. Uh, so it might be a little bit higher, but as far as the best methods we have, uh, these numbers seem to be pretty sound. And I got to let you go, but that, that was one of the things that really struck me is if, if I would have to believe that if there were people, that some of the people who have a problem might be embarrassed enough about getting themselves into this problem that they might not admit to it. That, that's one of the things that strikes me. If you have, how many people who are alcoholics, using a different example, would freely, if someone came up and asked them how much they drink, would actually say, honestly, I'm, I'm frankly amazed you were able to get this many people to admit to how much they've spent or, or what they've done in the casinos. I think that shows that you've got a lot of people being honest. I'm not sure. I, I'm shocked by that, quite, quite honestly. I really am. Yeah, people people are happy to talk to you if you if you want to talk to them. It's it, sometimes as simple as that. That If you ask people directed questions, the, most people tend to be honest. Dark, d- d- dark, Dr. Mark Vandermoss, uh, who is the lead author of this study and a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thank you so much. That was my, so and that cleared up something for me. I thought these buses were sent out by the casinos. And if that was the case, I would have a huge problem with this because that would essentially be like liquor stores in this province, run by the government, sending out shuttle buses to get people, some of whom potentially are alcoholics, right to the store to ease their addiction. Apparently, these are not sent out necessarily. These are private enterprise. That makes it a little bit different. It makes it, a, in fact, it probably makes it a lot different. Doesn't make it necessarily better for the people who are struggling, but I think that's an important distinction that I just learned. I, uh, maybe you knew that already. But if this had been the casinos sending out the buses, that to me is a much, much bigger problem. This is a more troubling problem. It's still a problem. But the fact that 30% of these people are actually having game flow, I, I still wonder, I still wonder how many people were honest about this. I wonder if the number is not actually higher.
of people who maybe have a gambling problem. Because I got to tell you, if I come out of a casino and I'm embarrassed because I've just lost a lot of money, I'm not sure I'm actually admitting that to somebody. Maybe I am. Maybe I am. Give me a Tim Hortons gift card. Maybe I'll tell you anything. I don't know. But be interesting. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. But let me read you the, um, the lead of a piece that came out today. According to findings published Tuesday, more than 99% of brains from deceased former NFL players that were examined for a study contained chronic traumatic encephalopathy. The study was published by medical journal JAMA, J-A-M-A, and researchers detected CTE in 110 of 111 brains from former NFL players that were donated. The study is the largest of its kind, it goes on to say. Rob Hitchcock, who was a Hamilton Ticat for many years, he was an Edmonton Eskimo for a cup of coffee as well, but retired 10 years ago. He's now a successful businessman. Uh, but he joins me now to chat about this. Rob, how are you? How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, that said, when you hear these things, when these stories come out, and they, they seem to come out every once in a while, these do these kind of things cause you any concern as a former player? Well, you know, I think it really does. Um, you know, as a player, when you're, you know, we heard about this stuff years ago, but nothing with CTE, but more of just on the concussion side and what happened. But when you're playing, it's very difficult, you know, to, to tell a player that's in a game, you know, uh, with the concussion protocol systems that we had back in, you know, 95 to 2007 were a lot different than they are now. Uh, but hearing these sort of things is, is scary. Um, but I don't think I would ever have changed the way I played the game or, um, you know, it, the game of football basically got me to where I am today. So, you know, knowing that it, this could happen, you know, to a lot of us in the next coming years is, uh, is a bit, you know, a bit scary, but it just, came out I think the other day when I watched uh, I said I'd never watched that movie Concussion and I ended up watching it on Sunday actually so it's kind of funny that this, uh, you know, this is coming up now and after the uh, after the, the movie ended there's a couple of uh, you know, a couple of sayings on the end that 28% of every football player will develop you know severe cognitive impairments in their brains or you know CTE so it did get me thinking a little bit more because I've been out of the game for 10 years and I'm 40 you know turning 47 this year if you believe it already so um, you know, it has crossed my mind, but uh, it is it is a difficult uh, thing to think about. I don't know if you want to answer this question, but at this point, when you physically or mentally, do you do you feel like you're wearing your football career every day when you get out of bed? Do you feel it still, or did you escape from the game in your mind pretty much unscathed? Well, I, I think the way I played, um, I should be feeling a lot more than I do. <laughs> um, you know, I, I played the game pretty hard and. That was the only way that I knew how to play the game, and, and you know, I, I don't think I was ever. I think I was diagnosed with really one concussion, but you know, everybody knows every time you make a hit, there's some type of damage to your brain. I probably had hundreds of concussions, but we're really never diagnosed with them. So, yeah, you know what? It, it, I do. You know, the aches and pains, sure, I do get those. Um, my knees are great. You know, a couple of other little things that are going on right now, but that's just some of the territory and the way I played the game. But I think I keep on. Okay. 
And that said, okay, so you've you've actually looked after this. You've you've done some some work to see that things are okay. Again, probably without naming names, are there guys that you have played with over the years that you meet up with later and you go, "Ooh, man, um, I'm worried about you." Yeah, there is. So not naming any names, of course, but there is some guys that I do keep in touch with, uh, with a lot of players, and you know, it's a matter of just talking with guys and maybe not understand it a couple times what you're saying, or you might even, you know, guys might be saying that about myself as well. Like you know, you don't think that you're okay, but you might be saying something in one sentence and then not making sense in another. But I, I, I have seen that not, not often, but I have seen it. I've heard it. Rob, you know what we're going to do? We've got a really difficult phone connection with you right now. I'm going to let you go. Lisa's going to give you a call right back, and we're going to see if we can try and get a better connection because you're really breaking up badly here. Let me let me let you go, and Lisa's going to call you right back and see if we can get a better line, all right? Sounds good. Thanks. Um, let me read while we're just hooking up with Rob again here. The, the study says that in addition to the 110 of 111 NFL brains. And frankly, I'm amazed that many guys have donated their brains to this study. But um, there were a total of 202 brains of deceased former players in all. So 110 out of 111 NFL players had the problem. 48 out of 53 college players, so still an extraordinarily high number. And 3 out of 14 in high school, a lot less. And the interesting part about this... I. I'm not going to be sitting here on the radio guessing at science. I don't know how to interpret this, but my initial guess, if I had to, and I'm not saying this is correct, but when you talk, football is played at different levels. At the NFL, it's at the the biggest guys who are moving the fastest with the hardest collisions. And in this study, high school would be the least of those the numbers do go down as you get to lower and lower speeds with smaller guys. I I don't know if that's why, but that would seem to be maybe part of what's going on here. But even at the lower end, 3 out of 14, so we're talking about roughly 25% of people who are playing even high school who were in this study had it. Let me see if we get better with it. Rob, how are you? Back again. Yeah, sorry about that. There we go. There, that's much, much better. All right. All right, good. Um. So I was asking if, if guys that, uh, and you were breaking up, but if, if guys that you've played with, if you've seen signs in them, and, and I mean, again, it's hard to say, I suppose, because you're, everyone's getting a little bit older and you don't really know, but have you, have you ever come across a guy that you've played with that you walked away after your conversation and thought, man, that, that guy has caused me some concern? Yeah, I, I would say yes. Um, and not major concern, but just, you know, kind of talking with, guy, with a couple of guys and just, you know, talking about one thing and then something just came up and it totally changed and you kind of think after like, well, I, we didn't even really talk about that, but yeah, it, it has come up. Um, it actually came up with me about five years ago. I was talking with one of my colleagues and he said the same sort of thing. He's like, Hey, we're talking about one thing. And all of a sudden you just brought something else up. And I really, you know, I had really no idea I was doing it, but um, you know, I think it's only really happened to me once as far as I know, and maybe people are just real nice and not saying anything to me. So, but I think I'm. I think I'm still all there for now. So. We we've had Mike Morreale on the show. You retired the same. Everyone remembers the story of you guys. We won't go into that today. But um, uh, but he's been on the show and we've talked about something similar to this. And he said there were a lot of times in his career that he walked off the field after a hit and felt kind of woozy or saw a few stars or something else. Now you mentioned a moment ago, Rob, that concussion protocol 
was different once upon a time. How often did that happen to you, that you may not have been diagnosed with a concussion, but you saw a few flashing stars in front of your eyes or something after a big hit? Well, let me let me start by saying like we, we had you know one of the greatest training staffs, I think, with Doc Levy and Chris Puskis in my day, and, and they really took care of us. I mean, I know that there was one time that I played in Edmonton uh, against Edmonton in, when I was with Hamilton, of course, and you know I hit Mike Pringle. Uh, we hit each other like two buckhorns, and all I remember is um, everything was black for about 15, 20 seconds, and things started coming back. And, and I don't actually remember a full quarter that I went in, and uh, I'm not mentioning who was there, but asked me a couple of questions, and I answered them pretty well, and, and I went back in and played. And, um, you know, that I, that was the only time I, I could ever say in my whole you know 13-year career that I really felt that I had a, a concussion and never had the symptoms, never had the headaches or the, the nausea or throwing up. I never had that, and, and I'm not sure why. Maybe I just, you know, I hit differently. Maybe I used my shoulders and my head, my hands a little, my, my arms a little bit more. Um, but I was really only diagnosed, I think, with one concussion in my, you know, high school was a lot different because we just, you know, we broke helmets basically in high school. There was the, the, the equipment back then was so much different. So could have had a lot more. It's just, you know, the one concussion I think I think I had, that was it. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, Doc Levy is, uh, David Levy is one of the great doctors, just retired from the Ticats after 45 years, and Chris Puskas, who's now a Mac. But the thing, the interesting thing about football players, they can only do, they can only treat the stuff that football players will tell them they're suffering. And the, and the thing is, Robin, and I don't know how much this falls into you, most guys that I've ever talked to, the last thing they want to do is admit that they're hurt or they have to come off the field. So they're not always, not every football player is always giving the doctor the full unvarnished truth when they come off the field. Exactly. And, and, and not in just in football, but in any sport, hockey or anything, it's as soon as you say that you're hurt and you go off, you give that other young guy or the, your backup a chance to go in and he proves himself, and then, you know, you're always thinking in the back of your head, well, this guy could take my job. So, you know, it's it's a funny game. Um, you know, af- being being an athlete, you know, whatever sport you're playing, you never want to lose that, you know, that power, I guess you can say. And, and, yes, there's been times where, you know, I've been, my shoulder was knocked out of place, and I said I was fine, and I just went back in and played. So, you just, as an athlete, you never want to lose, you know, lose that um, that advantage. You said that you believe you've had one, or you had diagnosed one concussion. Any guess how many you delivered? Because, I mean, if there's one thing you did, you hit hard. Everyone knew how hard you hit. Any guess how many times you knocked somebody out or knocked them woozy? Talking dozens? Uh, I don't think I can count that high. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, I, I probably, I know that I've, I've knocked a lot of people out. And after a really hard hit as well, you, you just look at the guy's face and you know that he's not right. But, you know that's that's why they didn't come across the middle a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, that no, but it it just it's. I'm wondering if now that you know this stuff, because one of the things, I mean, fans, Ticat fans loved the way you played because of that exact thing that you would crush guys when they would come across the middle. I'm wondering if when you watch a game now, if you see the same kind of hit that you used to deliver, can you watch it with the same level of? excitement and joy maybe that you used to have or now because we know about this stuff do you kind of go ooh that 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 could have caused a bit of something to shake up in his head i mean is it is it the same or can you not watch it the same way no i, I watch it the same way I, I i can tell you that i don't i don't see the big 
um, the big big collisions. You see a, a few of them, of course, each each week when you're when you're watching the games. And I and I'm pretty pretty good at watching most of the the CFL games. You know, from last week especially, just every single one of them. And there are some really nice hits there, but there's just not that. You know, I guess it would, I don't want to say old school, but you know, mentality where guys just go out and and just smash mouth football. You're seeing a lot of guys more form tackling and. And I think that's part of the protection, um, you know, of themselves to prolong the careers. And I'm not sure if that's coming from, you know, from the trainers or, but it's really tough to tell a, a football player or an athlete that's playing this game to, you know, you got to change your style of hitting. Like if somebody told me that, you know, coming in my fourth or fifth year of, of professional ball at Hamilton, that, hey, listen, you might have to do a little more form tackling and not go for the big hit. Well, it's it happens so quickly in our game that, it's very difficult, you know, to, to, to try to get that perfect tackle and you just try to take a guy down as, as quickly and as efficiently as you can. So that's it's very difficult to do that. You, you were never going to be Deion Sanders and just angle a guy out of bounds? No, that would not be me, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, but here, okay, so it comes right down to this, though, Rob, because as, we're, as we have all this information that's coming in, we hear this study today, we've got things that he, you've even acknowledged that are, are a little bit scary at times. So Rob Hitchcock, let's take in the time, get in the time machine. Rob Hitchcock is going back to what year did you turn pro? Ninety five. Ninety ninety five, and you're reading this information that says, oh, you know what? Uh, pro football players have a really high rate of brain injury that they suffer, and you're at the table now with the Tie Cats, and they slide a contract in front of Rob Hitchcock, and you've got to choose, knowing that down the road you could end up with brain injury or you could sign this contract and say oh, i'm going to play anyway and take my chances in football what do you do if that happens today do you sign or do you step away and say no i'm going to be safe well i think playing high school and then playing university down in the states and then getting opportunity to play professional uh i i would tell you that i would have signed the contract um i i worked my tail off to to get to that point to either play in the nfl or the cfl and 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 got that opportunity so i i would have uh i would have signed the contract um and again i i wouldn't have it's hard to say that now because of the fact that because i'm pretty successful in, in the business side of it now as well that it, it did mold me to who i am and i didn't know that at the time i didn't know i was going to play one year 13 years i didn't had no idea i just you know played the game and came out and played as hard as i could so I could tell you that I would, I would, uh, hearing what I know now, I would still sign a contract. And what percentage of guys that you played with do you think would give that exact same answer? Ninety-nine. Uh, yeah, the guys that I played with um, love the game and the passion of the game and the camaraderie of the game. I think that I would say almost one hundred percent of the guys would still play, and I, I still see the passion, even though, you know, the players are are, are listening to all these different studies that are coming out, and I still see guys playing this game, you know, as hard as they can. And, uh, and that's just, you know, it's just, we're a different breed. Yeah, well, that's, that is true, but Rob, we only have a couple of minutes, but what does this mean then for football? I mean, I, I suppose it means that the next generation that's already in the game, they're going to keep playing. And if they get the opportunity, especially in the NFL, if you can sign a contract that is going to make you more money than you could possibly make in any other line of work, you're going to do it. But are you a parent yet? Are you a parent now? Yes, I've got an 11-year-old boy and a, and a 13-year-old daughter. So, And does he play, or would you let him play? Um, I've always, people have asked me that question. He's playing soccer and hockey right now, and he's asked me to play football a few times, and I've, I've actually said no right now. He's too young. He's, he's turning 11 in September, and I said to him, I will teach you the game of football before you 
put on any pads. So he's out with me playing catch and doing all the fun stuff, and I'm showing him different little things. But he'll never play this game unless I'm out there, you know, with him and and showing him techniques and different things how to play this game. And I know it's people say, well, it's very difficult to you know to teach somebody you know the proper ways of doing things because concussion can come at any time, any hit. But as long as he's aware of the game and aware of his surroundings, I think uh, he'll be better off if he decides to play. But I will support him, but I am not pushing him into the game, no. But he's also got a father that can teach him the proper way to do this. Most people are not in that position. And I have to believe, Rob, I have to believe that the more and more studies that come out that say this kind of thing, the more and more parents are going to say, you know what? We're going to find another sport for you, whether it's soccer or hockey or basketball or whatever. I, I think we can probably skip football. I, I have to believe that's going to happen with a lot of people. I agree with you there. I think that the generation right now in the next five to six years will still be the same, but I, I would say my son's generation in the next eight to ten years, um, the, the game has to change or, you know, there's a lot of parents that just aren't letting their kids play. Um, and it's just that's just a fact, and, and, and I'm hoping the game doesn't fizzle out. I don't think it, it ever will, but if there's some changes in it, then, you know, so be it. But I, it's just very difficult to, to change a game that's been, you know, going on for such a long time and the way it's played. So, yeah, I hope it doesn't change, but, you know, for the safety of people, you know, I, I guess it has to. Rob Hitchcock, a guy who knows uh, all about hitting. Uh, everybody remembers how you used to play, Rob, and everyone loved that. Um, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott. Take care of yourself. There is, uh, I can't remember the last guy on the Ticats that hit like Rob Hitchcock did. Now, part of that, as he pointed out, is times have changed and you don't have players hitting the same way. You can't, you would, at the time, there was nothing illegal about the way Rob hit. So what I'm about to say doesn't in any way speak poorly of him. But if you played, it's like Scott Stevens in hockey. If you played and hit the way Rob Hitchcock did or Scott Stevens did today with current rules, they wouldn't be in the game very long. Because many of the things that they were taught and the way guys hit back then have been taken out of the game. And clearly when you start to look at some of these studies, you see why, the, I mean, the NFL, not to, the CFL too, but the NFL right now is clearly in a position where they've already lost lawsuits, they've or they've settled lawsuits, pardon me, with former players that's cost a lot of money. They are desperately trying to find some way to deal with this issue. And when I say deal with it, I don't really know what I mean because dealing with it as in eliminating it would almost certainly mean getting rid of tackling. Well, that that's not going to happen. We're not, the NFL is not going to become a flag football league. So it's reducing, I think, is the best that it can hope for. But let me go back to the point that I asked Rob, because I think this ultimately becomes the interesting part of this whole discussion. Rob says football players are a different breed. Clearly they are. Athletes in general, elite athletes, clearly are a different breed. And if you sat them down and said, look, you can walk away from the sport right now and you will not have any chance of a brain injury or you can play and take your chances. Every player, including Rob just now, that I've ever heard, I've ever talked to, have all said, no, no, I I would have signed. I would have taken my chances. If you told a baseball player, 
You can sign to play Major League Baseball. You can sign a contract and you will play Major League Baseball, but, and this these numbers are not accurate, but we are going to tell you that one in four players are going to take a fastball to the face over the course of their career that's going to cause serious injury. Every single one of those players will still sign the contract because they'll say, well, that won't be me. And even if it is me, I still want to play the game. So what do you do if you still have everybody who wants to play? I I think it comes down to that last question. I think ultimately what we're going to see is in the future and the not-too-distant future, I think football is going to be facing a significant problem, a significant crisis, because you are going to have more and more and more and more and more parents saying, no, no, my kid's not playing football. No, no. When I look at all these stats and all these studies and all these numbers and see how many kids are apparently, apparently, because the science is still young and still new, but apparently suffering brain injuries, I think we can find something else for little Johnny to participate in. I don't really... The, where you're going to find the players, and this is where it gets really socially awkward, if not something else, where you're going to find your future football players are going to be from the lowest levels of the socioeconomic structure. Because if they are looking at this now as the way out of poverty, the risk would seem to make a lot of sense. The risk is worth it. But for someone who doesn't have to escape poverty, why in the world would you continue to play? Why in the world would you take that chance? And then it becomes a whole discussion about whether or not we are abusing people from a certain part of society for this and, and use it. it. Again, it becomes a very complicated, very difficult discussion at that point. Unless science... Helmet technology, tackling something, unless something can change it to make the sport considerably, seemingly safer. Because these numbers, boy, oh boy, these numbers that came out today, 99% of deceased NFL players who donated their brains to science have suffered or at least showed evidence of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. I understand, by the way, as I wrap up here, I understand that the topic of concussions has become quite, ugh. To a lot of people, they hear the topic of concussion. I'm with you. A lot of the time, I'm with you on the whole. Concussion has not become exactly the most exciting topic. I, I understand that. But when you see numbers like this, boy, oh boy, it is um, it is worth talking about. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.